session with Dr. Farid Holakou. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. On Instagram Live for the show, so I'm not taking calls, but you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is Humor Seriously, Why Humor is a Secret Weapon in Business and Life and How Anyone Can Harness It, Even You, by Jennifer Aker and Naomi Bagdonis. Uh, humor Seriously, Why Humor is a Secret Weapon in Business and Life and How Anyone Can Harness It, Even You. Even a little bit of humor there in the uh title or the subtitle uh it is interesting the book of the week from last week i'll talk about tonight is about death and so this week thought it'd be interesting to have a juxtaposition with a very positive book a book on humor and looking at it more from a scientific type of a perspective so look forward to reading that and sharing it with you uh, on next week's show this book uh, my brother parham he had read it and recommended it he said it was good uh, so looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week the book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight is A Matter of Death and Life by Irvin D. Yalom and Marilyn Yalom. A Matter of Death and Life by Irvin D. Yalom and Marilyn Yalom. This book was actually recommended to me by a listener all the way in Germany. So thank you again for that recommendation. Uh, I'm really glad I read this book. And so the title obviously already uh, does have some weight to it, a matter of death and life. And even I think the way they, rather than saying life and death, that's how we usually think of it. I actually like that they put it that way, a matter of death and life. As I'll talk about on today's show, I think that until we actually come to grips and accept the reality of our death, of everyone's death, we don't really take our lives seriously enough or we're at risk for not taking it seriously enough. So a matter of death and life. So Irvin D. Yalom is actually, many of you might know his name. He's a very well-known psychiatrist, therapist, has written many books on different topics, especially on group therapy. He's actually someone who's done a lot of great work in that field, but just in therapy in general. He's also written books of fiction. He is a very prolific and um, well-known individual in the field of uh, psychology. And so his wife, I didn't actually know, but his wife, Marilyn Yalom, is a, a great writer, or I should say was a great writer, if we're using it in that context. Um, a, a feminist writer, also wrote about uh, French, and uh, was a professor at Stanford as well. And so the book is essentially written by both of them, um, Marilyn Yalom, they share the story in the book, came up with this idea. She was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, and some people live for several years. People have different experiences, but um, she came up with this idea and told her husband, Irvin Yalom, let's write a book together discussing this issue or going into or giving people a glimpse into death, what that's like, what it's like for a couple uh, getting to the end of life and how they handle this, these issues and um, 
basically implored him or asked him because he was working on another book to put that book aside or put it on the back burner and focus on this book that they would write together. And he did accept. And so the book, you have alternating chapters, one by Irvin, one by Marilyn, husband and wife, sharing what's going on over this, what ended up being their last year together. And as you can imagine, it's quite powerful, intense heartbreaking at times, but very touching and moving as these two individuals share about love and loss or the prospect of loss. Uh, and I think it's a very meaningful book, and I'm very happy I read it because of that. Um, early in the book, I was, first of all, I did uh, post this on my Instagram. You might have seen it on the story. I was very touched and thought this quote, which is like the, I think it's called the epigraph, which starts the book or it's before the book, is a one sentence that very succinctly captures something I think is so real about the human experience. And this is that quote, mourning is the price we pay for having the courage to love others. Mourning, and so mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, that pain of loss. Mourning is the price we pay for having the courage to love others. And I think that's so true and so real and something we have to accept that if we want to love others and be in relationships with them, which is the most, I think, meaningful and important part of life is the relationships that we have, we have to be willing to pay that price of mourning or at least risk that price Life, obviously, maybe let's say that person dies before you, but there can also be breakups. So many different ways that we have to mourn the loss of a relationship or a person in our life, but we have to accept that price if we want to um, have relationships, have those most meaningful experiences. So I thought that was beautiful and, of course, very apt for this book to talk about that. Um, and so we see these, this, these, uh, this couple, and they're very cute couple. Like Maybe that sounds like a strange word, but They've been together since they were in essentially high school, or I think they were in even junior high. They might have known each other. So really high school sweethearts that then got married in their early 20s. And so when uh, Marilyn passed away, um, they were married, I think, something like 65, 66 years together or knew each other for so long. So it, it was quite um, beautiful to see their love expressed, each of them writing separately. So again, it's written together, but... They're not writing any of the chapters together. It's separate, very short little chapters. And so they share different experiences. Early in the book, it was very interesting, actually. A few pages in, Irvin Yalom shares about how he goes every day to his office, which is next to their house, and he'll look at sometimes fan mail that he get, uh, gets. Again, he's written many uh, books and is very well known in the field. And he says uh, on a Saturday morning, he wakes up and he has an email from a student who is from Iran. And he shares the letter, uh, not putting the name, of course, and it shares his experience of reading your books has helped me so much, and I'm so lucky to find you, and I had no hope to continue my life. Reading your books makes me hopeful. I really don't know how to thank you. So it's interesting for me, just a few pages in, that he, write, he got a message from someone in Iran, and his, his message was very kind back. I'm very happy that my books have been important and helpful to you. Let us hope that one day our two countries will regain their senses and compassion for one another. My very best wishes to you, Irv Yalom. And so he says he tries to respond to many, or I don't know if all, but of these letters that he gets and to include their names to, to show them that he really sees them or to hopefully make them feel seen. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, that was early on in the book. It made me feel connected to the book in, in a certain way. 
But as I mentioned, they share their experiences. And Irvin Yalom himself, uh, as they were writing this book, I think he was 86, 87 years old. Or yeah, I think 87. And so he has his own health issues as well. So he's facing his own death. It's not just his wife's death. Uh, That one might be closer on the horizon uh, as the book begins, but he knows his own health is is failing and changing as well. And Marilyn shares her painful experience. The treatments she's going through are difficult, unpredictable, how she's going to do. There are side effects that she's experiencing that, uh, of course, make the whole process very difficult and she's in a lot of pain. And early on in the book, you see her bring up the idea of physician-assisted suicide. Um, Later in the book, uh, another doctor called it physician-attended dying, which I think does sound better than physician-assisted suicide. But she's in so much pain and it's possible the treatments won't help her. And so she's very open and direct about it and asks the doctor who's treating her, what do you think about this or what's the prospect of physician-assisted suicide? Um, and even Irvin Yalom, he's shocked at her frankness and directness and and just talking about this, this issue. And so she's thinking about it because she is in a lot of pain. And sadly, it's hard for her to enjoy things and live life the way that she used to. And so we see this thread, of course, of her health and how she's doing. Some of the treatments are helping her sometimes. Um, they're not, and eventually they find that the, the treatment is not really helping her, which leads to decisions that are made later on. But we also see both of them sharing what this experience of death is bringing up for them. Um, and um, Irvin Yalom himself, as an existential psychologist, has written a lot about death anxiety. Uh, and he talks about that, how he's talked about this so much, and actually it, it, he has his own. He talks about how he used to run a group for individuals, I believe, who were dealing with cancer and um, their treatments, and some were, did die, and it brought up a lot of death anxiety for himself. So he's had that, uh, and they, they share about that in different concepts related to it. And he, um, Irvin Yalom, he does mention, and I think very true, that when we look at death anxiety and this fear of death, a big part of that is, uh, as he puts it, is correlated with our regrets, the regrets of h- how we did not live our life fully enough or what we didn't experience in our life. And so uh, that correlation would be that the more regrets you have, the more death anxiety you are likely to have, which I think is very true. The more you feel like you haven't lived your life, the more you don't want to die or to 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 run out of time in that sense. And so both of them actually, they do have some death anxiety or he experiences it more, I think, when he talks about it earlier. Um, But they both talk about not really having many regrets. Actually, Marilyn very specifically says it in one part of the book that she's lucky to have had a good life and does not have regrets about her life, making it easier for her to um, face her own death because she feels good about that. Now, also... They both share early and it comes up throughout the book. They don't believe in an afterlife. So they both believe that when they, when someone dies, their consciousness no longer exists and they don't experience anything anymore. And so there is no life after death, which of course, it's definitely a factor when you're dealing with death. What you think happens after has a big impact on how you're going to experience loss yourself thinking about your death and thinking about the death of loved ones. And that's a belief and uh, no one can prove it to you 
either way that there is definitely a life after death or there is not, but it is a belief and both of them have this belief that life ends at death or that consciousness, that individual's life ends with death. And so that also comes up for both of them. Uh, You know, when I'm gone, these things I've experienced no longer exist, or even Irvin Yalom very uh, sweetly will talk about how Marilyn will remember certain details of their life better than he does. So he says that when she dies, not only will I lose her, my partner, but in some ways lose so much of my own life, uh, my own memories, because she remembers, she'll sometimes ask her for, uh, you know, a reminder of what was this or you know, did we see this movie before or things of that nature? And so he says uh, that will end when she is gone and that makes him very sad. So we see different aspects of their um, experience of, of anticipating this loss. Of course, Marilyn seems to be dying first um, and that's very painful. And of course, that has its own experience. But Irvin, knowing he's going to live after her, what is that going to be like? And that's very painful. Um, I do want to talk about this book another segment because I thought there was so much interesting uh, interesting things in it. But I just want to share something before I go to the commercial break. Uh, so Irvin Yalom continuing to practice therapy into his 80s, which is remarkable. But he does share about how he slowly, uh, his memory is starting to fade and he um, recognizes it might not be good for him to see ongoing patients. Uh, for therapy. Even near the end of his life, he was doing one year. People would make a one-year commitment and he would see them for one year. But uh, he does have this experience where he forgets he has an appointment. He books someone for the 4th of July. He goes to his office and sees someone's there. Or I think he might have had, he he forgot he even had an appointment or he thought it was a phone appointment. Either way, someone was there. um, And and so that makes him realize he should not see clients anymore. But I did want to share something he wrote that brought tears to my eyes as a therapist myself. Um, about the experience when he decides that it's time for him to retire and he thinks about what he will miss. He shares this story, and I won't get to it. It's actually a very interesting story of this woman who um, had some issues with his mother and um, her own mother, and she uh, shares that story. If you read the book, you'll you'll see that. But let me read you what he says. This is from Irvin Yalom. When he thinks about this uh, experience when he had one session with this woman, he says, That encounter so many years ago conveys what I will miss for the rest of my life. The sense of engagement, of being trusted, of sharing deep and dark moments with another. And most of all, the opportunity to offer so much to another person. That's been my way of life for so many years. I treasure it. I will miss it. And as I read that, I, I did get tears in my eyes after hearing the story and thinking and reflecting on my own experience, how lucky I feel to be a therapist and that people trust me. And he says, helping, and you always hope to be helping individuals in that process. But that really resonated with me, that experience of just being able to share these very emotionally intimate moments with people and them trusting you with some of their secrets or the dark, what they think are these dark parts of themselves. Um, I, I really felt that and did remind me of how lucky I am to get to do what I do. So we're going to go to a commercial break, but I do want to continue the conversation on the book again. It's A Matter of Death and Life by Irvin D. Yalom and Marilyn Yalom. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing uh, the discussion on the book, A Matter of Death and Life by Irvin D. Yalom and Marilyn Yalom. And so it's a very intimate um, experience actually reading the book, but a very intimate portrait and essentially memoir of this last year 
of their life together. And so, sadly, um, Marilyn's health does not respond or she doesn't respond well to the treatment that she was getting. And as a result, she decides to no longer continue some other forms of treatment that might work, but likely have these certain side effects and decides to, to be on hospice care or essentially you're trying to make your last days as comfortable uh, as possible. And so you might, you don't know exactly how long you will live. And that's essentially what she uh, accepts. And so she continues talking about um, this potential of physician-assisted suicide or um, physician-attended dying. Um, and Irvin Yalom, her husband, is at times shocked or we see this uh, kind of conversation that comes up throughout uh, this, you know, both of them expressing it where he sometimes will tell her, but what about the moments we do share these good times? And she shares with him, if you knew how much pain I'm in, how much I'm suffering, um, you would understand. And so they do have this conversation and he tells her, I wish I could take your pain. Um, and he, I think he means it. I wish I could take this, not you, um, but he can't. And so there is this conversation they have and this dynamic where he doesn't, of course, want to lose her and hopes she'll fight for living or find a way for living. And of course, he's a therapist. So um, a lot of times when you have depressed patients or clients, one of the things you're trying to do is give them hope to live, find meaning in life. And so I think that was interesting to see that dynamic of him trying to encourage her to find a reason to keep going or tell her get her to see that's worth living why would you want to end your life sooner if you could still be alive and so she keeps sharing that and so they they have that experience that goes through um the book as well and again talks about what should we do with the things we have what should we um do with my, her books or uh, different experiences and it's tough even just facing those things because it makes it more real uh, but eventually her health does deteriorate and she's in a lot of pain and she says she wants to um, she doesn't want to be alive anymore it's very sad and, and it's very powerful very intense and so I mean it was breaking my heart even looking at the chapter titles before or while I was reading the book or at different times going back and you um, realize that she's not writing the last few chapters and so that was just a very real um, indication that she wouldn't be there. And it was interesting, even as I read the book, uh, I knew that she would die because uh, I think I read that in the description. And the last chapter is titled Dear Marilyn, uh, heartbreaking, but um, his last little message to her. But I think I at times would be in that denial. And some of the way we deal with death, there is this denial of the reality of death. So I think I recognized that in myself that as I was reading the book, there was times where I was, you know, reading her parts and forgetting that she would not um, be alive by the end of this book or that she would die. And so that was painful, but an interesting realization that I had while reading the book um, that she would be, she would no longer be there, but I was denying her death myself to some degree. I, I, I just didn't want to accept it. And so... When she's not feeling well, she says um, she doesn't feel good. And sadly, she says, it's time, Irv, it's time. No more, please, no more. I don't want to live. And um, he asks for the doctor to come. And um, she's on so much morphine that the doctor says she's not conscious enough or lucid enough to, to make that um, 
determination to ask for it. So the, the, the patient now in California, it is legal. Of course, there are um, hurdles to making that happen. But um, the person has to be more conscious to really give that consent. So they decided to do it the next morning. Uh, her children are there. And um, because she has a hard time swallowing pills, and it was, it was several pills that had to be taken, they had crushed it up and put it into a water. And so she, you know, it's kind of sad even when you're reading these parts. She had to drink it through a straw, but the doctor was worried that what if she drinks some of it, um, but is not you know, conscious enough to suck up the rest of the drug, which leads to issues where, you know, the law again, if she's not conscious to then give it to her would be a problem. Nonetheless, she's able to take the medicine and um, Irvin puts his head uh, and focuses on her breathing. And he says, I watch her every movement and silently count her breaths. After her 14th feeble breath, she breathes no more. I lean over to kiss her forehead. Her flesh is already cool. Death has arrived. My Marilyn, my darling Marilyn, was no more. And so um, that's how she um, dies in his last moments with, with her are recounted there. And so the last 70, 80 pages of the book, it's just Irvin writing about his experience grieving, which is, of course, heartbreaking as well. And you see him go through different experiences at times being very numb. There's a chapter titled Numbness, and he describes a few times this experience of being numb. He has four, they have four adult children together, and so they take care of a lot of the logistics, which is nice. Um, but he just shares that experience, and, and it's it's heartbreaking. He, he keeps sharing how he always wants to, he, he wants to share things with her, even though um, people... Uh, of course, she's not there anymore. She's no, she knows she's not alive. And so he says, oh, this happened. I, I got to tell Marilyn. And then he remembers she's not there. And something else happens, and he wants to tell her, which I think is, is sweet. It's, it shows how tight their bond was. At one point, he says, it's almost like something isn't real or didn't really happen until I tell her or talk to her about it, showing how close their bond was together, how connected they were. Um, I thought it was interesting he mentioned how this was so irrational that he was would do this, have these moments where he would say, oh, I got to tell Marilyn about this. Um, and, and I thought it was being, he was being hard on himself by calling it irrational because I think it's expected. And, and he does talk about how he talks to some people and I think even a former student or someone that explains to him when it comes to, you know, memory and things, this can make sense. But to me, it, of course, it makes sense that for 65, 70 years, you knew someone and we're talking to them all the time when when something happens automatically you're going to think to tell them something or, or to do that that's your reaction when you've done something for so many years it takes a long time to to unlearn that it makes sense um, we are predicting machines or our brain is a predicting machine so it's understandable that in those moments and for a long time you're, you're going to expect that i should tell her or you prepare to tell her something because for so many years he had told her something but he does share this experience that how many times it happens um, and i did feel almost he was being too hard on himself saying that you know how can i be so irrational how can i think that it was a reaction uh, to me if he was thinking um oh no no she's really here i'm gonna go home and for minutes i'm gonna go tell her about it when i go home that's a denial and people even experience that at times during grieving denial is one of the stages of grief um, that would be more of an irrational type of thought to me but just the reaction of oh i should tell her 
seems to me like, of course, it's expected that that's going to happen. But he shares his experience grieving, even um, his experience, he, he becomes preoccupied with or not preoccupied, but more sexual or focused on sex. And he shares how that surprises him and how he um, didn't know is that natural or normal. And it's interesting because as a therapist and him as a very humanistic type of a therapist, he's a very non-judgmental person. If you've seen him give talks, even there's um, group therapy sessions. I was watching one today of him, of an excerpt or a segment of that or the way he does therapy. Very non-judgmental, even the anecdotes he shares in the book. Uh, but again, it did feel like he was judging himself at times, but he was wondering, why am I having this kind of sexual um, urge arise? And I, I think it's understandable now, you know, people might feel like it's a betrayal. Now you're single um, because your partner's no longer there. So it's understandable that desire or that urge comes up. And a lot of people actually have that reaction. And even at one point he says, maybe that's better than feeling nothing um, to have that sense. But it's something that people do experience. And what's actually also interesting is when he's now dealing with grief, one of the things he does is he rereads some of his own books and he forgets a lot of what he wrote. And even in one of his books, he talks about this issue of having this um, rise in sexual energy after when you're grieving the loss of, of a partner. It's just interesting that he is taught so much and written so much that he's forgotten a lot of what he wrote that actually even he says how it's therapeutic reading some of his own work, both just to enjoy it, but um, he, he's learning stuff from it in a sense or relearning some of those things. So I thought that was interesting too. Uh, but he shares his what he goes through dealing with this grief and it's tough again he shares how even he thinks about being with her again and how he wonders that even though if he doesn't believe in this if he doesn't believe in an afterlife maybe holding on to this belief um, it's very soothing it might be worth it for him to do that and so we, we just read about him the, the the titles of the chapters, uh, it says indecisiveness, for example, here, but it says 90 days after. So it's 90 days after she has died. And it goes a few months into after um, she's passed. I think when she passed away, she was 87 and he was 88. Uh, and it seems like from when they wrote this book, she died uh, at the end of 2019 because he then writes in this last chapter about the coronavirus and lockdown and how it's happening. So it seems like that's happening in this March, about four or five months after she's passed away and, and how that's happened. And so it's very um, sad to read this book, but I think it's very important for us to read it because, um, first of all, I think learning about their experience is important, but... Um, I think if we don't recognize or make very real that we are going to die, that all of us are going to die. And even when you say that, I know it sounds very dark and, and something sad, but that if we don't realize that we are going to die, we might not take our lives seriously enough. And so I think it's important to face that death. We try to deny it. And of course, anytime we become aware of something, it can bring up that anxiety. So there is sometimes this thin line between what I think we need to have is death awareness um, and death anxiety, which can make us very afraid of death. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with the sentiments that came up in the book several times that the less your regrets are in life, the less you'll have death uh, anxiety, anxiety about death. But when I talk about 
awareness about death or death awareness, the reason why I think it's so important is that it's not that I want people to become obsessed with dying, where they're preoccupied or fixated on dying, but actually to make us obsessed with living, meaning that we put efforts to live a very intentional, purposeful life, that you recognize that you don't have forever to do what you want to do. That's part of the death denial that we have, that, oh, I'll I have forever to take care of whatever I want to do, whatever I want to do, experiences, taking risks, whatever it might be. We have this sense that because I'm going to live forever, this death denial gives us this sense, I can do it later or tomorrow. And we don't really relish and take advantage of our today, living in the moment, taking the risks, doing things that we think are meaningful and not putting them off. And so for me, it's very important when I read the book um, Mortality by Christopher Hitchens a few months back, that was in some ways similar. That was more just an autobiographical experience of his last months or last, I think, I forgot how long, alive. Uh, But it's a reminder that if we don't recognize that we're going to die, we might not take our lives seriously enough. So uh, I thought this book really is a very real a description and insight into the experiences of these two individuals. You see their love for one another, their strong bond for one another, the pain they're experiencing as they approach their last weeks, months together, and Irvin Yalom's painful experience and very vulnerable for him to share this as someone who's very, uh, you know, renowned and well known, but his painful experience is dealing with the loss of his wife of over 60 plus years. Uh, I think it was a wonderful book that I think uh, everyone would benefit from reading. So that was A Matter of Death and Life by Irvin D. Yalom and Marilyn Yalom. And again, a big thank you to um, the listener all the way from Germany for making that recommendation. I really do appreciate it. Danke for that. Uh, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Um, but wanted to continue on the theme of the book of the week that I was discussing, A Matter of Death and Life by Irvin D. Yalom and Marilyn Yalom. Really powerful account of two individuals who love each other facing mortality, facing losing the love of your life, and what's that life to deal with afterwards, and also facing your own death. And so this topic of um, death anxiety is a big theme throughout the book. And as I was mentioning at the end of last segment, I think it's very important for us to um, recognize and fully accept the reality of our death, which can be painful, scary, bring up lots of feelings, but important for us to genuinely recognize and accept that in order to live more fully, that you won't have a chance to do everything forever if you don't take action now. And even I think it could be a good idea to look at your own life and see what you like in it, what you don't like in it, what's meaningful to you, what's not meaningful, and also to look forward and try to look back that what would you regret if you did not do in your life or what might you regret about the life you are living? Uh, Because if we don't do that, you can end up near the end or at the end of your life with lots of regrets. And as they mention in the book a few times in a few different ways, the more regrets we have, the more likely we are to have death anxiety. Um, And so I think that's a very good point and something to be very aware of. Now, I wanted to talk about some issues related to this. Now, someone even asked me in the 
I don't know if it was in a comment or question about my own views about life after death. And I think it's complicated and I won't get into some of the specifics, but as I mentioned, either way, no one can prove it to you one way or the other what happens um, after we die. So I won't get into too much about that, but I did want to mention something I've talked about before, which is about this experience of the experiences we have after a loved one dies, about feeling them or um, related to things like ghosts or communications from the other side. Is it possible, again, that people can can somehow speak to the other side? There's mediums. I think most of the time these mediums or fortune tellers uh, are just trying to take your money and tell you very generic things about, you know, your, your loved one is telling you. And there's been many... Um, proven people who have been uh, taking people's money and they're you know con artists trying to trick people into thinking i can talk to your loved one and i think it's a very horrible thing because people are so uh, you know in in pain missing their family members missing their loved ones stricken with grief wanting some kind of reassurance or connection with them and then these people are taking advantage of them and saying i can talk to your uh, you know, your husband or wife or your son or daughter, or whoever it is that they are missing from the other side and connect you with them and have this amazing experience. And, and I think it's horrible that people do that. And so I think I, I'm pretty confident that most of the time um, this is not at all true. And it's someone taking people's money and again, really taking advantage of vulnerable vulnerable people, which is horrible. Um, and when they've proven these people to be con artists, we see that they use lots of information. Um, few things they do. One is they um, say very general things. So you have a group, you know, hundreds of people who have come to an event uh, who have lost a loved one. And you say, anyone I have a, a, you know, breast cancer? And of course, out of hundreds of people, they're likely someone, you know, or they might even say in general, some kind of cancer or something, of course, someone in the audience. And so some of them stand up or the letter M, I'm forgetting the letter M. Of course, lots of names have M or something about the person is M. Sometimes they even get information beforehand. So people fill things out and the person is getting um, fed something in their ear. So I was watching some documentary on one of these. I don't remember the details of it, but basically being told, okay, so-and-so here, they live on this street or something about their past. And then um, they, you know, get them to think I'm talking to them. She says, is there something about this? And then, yeah, they're letting you know she's okay. Da, 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 blah, 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 something, something to give them, you know, the sense that I can talk to them. And then sometimes they'll sell private sessions and they take money in all sorts of different ways. It's really, really horrible what people will do just to take advantage uh, of vulnerable people. So I'm very, very skeptical when someone says they can talk to someone from the other side, if there even is this other side, but I'm very skeptical of that. And I would, I think it's important to, to be that it's understandable. You have such a desire to talk to a loved one that you're so uh, having a hard time saying goodbye to and missing so much and just want to communicate with in some way. But we have to make sure that because of that desire or that pain that we're having, we, we don't follow false ways of, of getting hope or getting some kind of a relief. Um, so I think that's something that sadly does happen and people get taken advantage of very often. I also wanted to talk about ghosts. People talk about seeing ghosts. Um, do I think there are ghosts as in some kind of a thing we can see of uh, people? Now, sometimes we can't see them or they do something. I don't think so. That to me 
does not really make sense, like where they move things around or do something like that. I don't believe in that. But what I do think is a, a way of understanding this. So, for example, um, what I want to talk about now is similar to people who have experienced, for example, a, uh, alien abductions. They've done some uh, studies on these and some theories are that some people that have these experiences of alien abductions, they might be experiencing some kind of sleep paralysis or something is going on that actually can help explain this issue, this uh, what they experience. So it's not actually they got abducted by aliens, but they are awake or they're dreaming, but they can't move and they see this type of a thing. So um, what I think about ghosts and people experiences of ghosts is giving an explanation to what some people might be experiencing. So uh, something I've, a concept or a way I like to think of something is calling, is what I'd call an emotional signature. Now let me explain what that is. An emotional signature is each person um, that we encounter and our loved ones have a type of a uh, emotional signature that they leave on us, meaning a very unique experience. So if you have a husband, a wife, um, some kind of loved one, um, you feel something when you're around them. That's very unique. So when we think about feelings, we tend to think of happy, sad, angry, fearful, surprised, disgust. Maybe there's a few of these um, general ones. And sometimes we think those are the feelings. But really what we should think of when we look at feelings is those are like the primary colors, but with those primary colors, we can make infinite number of colors with all these different blends of those primary colors. So it's not that there are just a few experiences of feelings like happy, sad, that's it. Feelings are much more complex than that. So it's not just a one word type of thing or a very general type of thing. It's a very unique thing. There's a feeling you get when you're around your loved one, that's a unique thing. You can't just say it's happy or comfort or a good feeling. Um, it's a experience that you have when you're with them that you feel it feels like them. Um, actually, you know, when we talk about these infinite amount of feelings, when uh, looking at memes and a lot of um, pop culture type of references, or I've seen things where people talk about that's a mood or, uh, you know, vibes or these types of things. And that's the same thing. Sometimes people will say that's a mood, meaning I can kind of feel what they're feeling, what's in this picture, in this video, uh, and it describes a unique experience. And so it resonates with us in some way. And that's what we feel. So it's actually interesting. I don't think people think of it in that way, but that's why when we see these memes or videos or pictures and it makes us we, we say that's a mood or that's a, um, something that we can relate to, basically. It's that we feel that. It's kind of like how a metaphor works, which I talked about recently as well. So each person you have in your life, important people especially, you have a certain feeling that they give you. And this feeling is not static in the sense that it never changes. Of course, when you first meet someone, they have very little feeling for you. Then as you get closer, you feel more. We can imagine a husband and wife getting together. At first, they barely know each other. There's some excitement when they think about each other. Let's say they get closer. That feeling gets more meaningful, gets deeper. It has positive things. It could have negative things, of course, things that happen. And if you actually don't deal with those negative things they stay there and they sometimes fester and they become part of that feeling so imagine the experience of a husband or wife they've been together many years and then one of them is unfaithful to the other person 
Now they have this whole history of feeling with them that will be brought up by them, but also this betrayal, especially if it's recent, might color the whole feeling experience they have with that individual. And so as a result, it's such a complex thing they're experiencing. I love you so much. I can remember so many good feelings from you, and I still have some of that when I think of you. But this betrayal, also this stinging, painful, hurting feeling is also there as well. And it can be very complex. And can that be repaired? It can be potentially, but it does take time. And that's something we have to recognize, that kind of a rupture and how you feel and that connection and that experience of that person will take time to heal. But coming back to what we experience in general is you have a feeling. You think of your grandmother, you think of your brother, you think of your mother, your son, whoever it is that you're thinking of, you have a certain feeling about them. And so what I think happens when people think they... People even say, I feel my grandmother's presence, my grandfather's presence, my ex-husband's presence, or my husband's presence, who is now past. You have this experience at times where something will remind you or trigger that emotional signature of that person again, and you'll feel like they are there. So that part of when people think they see a ghost or someone is there, I feel him or her here, I do believe that or very much agree with that, but not necessarily feel as in their spirit or soul or they are somehow or their ghost is in the room, but in the sense that something is triggering that feeling you have with them or of them that they bring up for you. And so you feel like they're there. And I think that's what makes it feel so real, is that this is how I felt with my grandfather. So he must be here right now. But we know that so many things can trigger our feelings or experiences of a certain place, a certain thing, um, that we can um, be transported all of a sudden to that feeling place, even of a specific memory with an individual, that we can think that we are there again. Uh, In Proust, a very well-known incident is he takes a bite of this Madeline cookie and reminds of this whole scene of his childhood related to having these Madeline cookies, I believe his aunt would give him. And so uh, he was transported just by this taste of this cake in his mouth brought up all of this memory. And so, so many things can bring up our experiences of people and that feeling. So what I think people are experiencing when they um, think there is a Uh, they're in the presence or they're feeling the person is there is they are having that internal feeling of that person being there and they make them think that externally they must be there but it's just that we can internally be triggered by other things other than the actual person being there even if you have a loved one who is alive okay you can they can be somewhere else and you could think of them what was it like the last time you hugged them and you might get some of that feeling it's not a ghost. It's not that you've transported them into your home and now they are hugging you, but you are able to bring up that feeling. And so you feel that you feel like they are there, even if they're physically not there in any type of a way, um, you still feel them. And so I think this is similar to what we're experiencing. If the person has died, you continue to experience them and you can continue to have a relationship even with them. I know that sounds strange, but you maybe have a grandfather that was very loving, supporting, made you feel good about yourself. And so if 
they he has passed away, you might be in a moment where you're not feeling very good, feeling low about yourself, and you might think about how he made you feel. Or what would he say to me now? And even though, of course, he's not alive, he can't be telling you anything, you might be able to get that feeling of how he makes you feel, even say something to yourself, hear his voice telling you something, and it might give you some comfort, make you believe in yourself, or give you what it is that you might need in that moment. We know that we internalize the voices of the people around us, and we can even utilize them intentionally. Sometimes automatically they can come up as well. Um, So do I know if people survive death in some way I, I can't tell you that they they do but can you still experience them after they've left absolutely just like we experience each other in a way you could even say even when we see each other are we really in some way the feeling you get it's something that you feel about them are they actually imprinting the feelings on you or making you feel something it's not really true it's even how we relate to people that are alive it's different because you can no longer have new experiences with them but you can still experience them in some way and you might feel their presence doesn't mean they're a ghost in the room but feel that presence of how they would make you feel and that even reminds me of there's like a quote i don't know who said it or if it's just like an anonymous type of a quote that says people you know years from now people will remember the things you said but they will will remember how you made them feel And, and i totally agree with that because i think we do continue to remember that you think of someone You might not remember exactly why, but you have a good feeling, a warm feeling, a pleasant feeling, or a very hurt feeling, an uncomfortable feeling, an unsafe feeling. And it's not necessarily specific words they said that you'll remember, but that experience. And so I think that's something similar that people, when they have that sense of a presence or a ghost, it's just having that feeling again that they got from that person, but doesn't mean that they necessarily are there. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. As always, a big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to Inset with Dr. Fadi Dolakwi. Have a wonderful night.